0: Let's open our Bibles to James chapter 3, where the Lord has led us this morning to a consideration of the subject that He led James to write about in these verses. James chapter 3. Brethren, in James chapter 1, we were warned not to be hearers only of God's Word, but to be hearers and doers. We were warned to hear the Word of God And leave an assembly and go our way and do not make changes, then we are like unto. A man that looks at his face in a mirror realizes he has many blemishes, spots from the night of sleep, and does not correct them before he goes to an interview. But whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty and continueth therein, and shall be blessed in his deed. There is a blessing. There is a pinata hanging over your head if you will reach up with your heart and hear what is taught from these verses and I along with you to know what God expects of us regarding our tongues. Do not hear and leave this assembly and go your way without changing. May God crush you for being so insolent and rebellious. Let us hear the word of the Lord and humble ourselves before it and say within our hearts, Lord, forgive me. Amen. Forgive me for my speech. Have mercy upon me. Guard my lips and the door of my mouth that the words that come out of it will be gracious Edifying and pleasing in thy sight. These are hard words that we're about to consider. God chose them. And I hope that we will humble ourselves before them. How important is the tongue to James? Come back to chapter 1 and let's see how important the tongue is to James. When God chooses and inspires an apostle to write to carnal Christians... How much does he say about the tongue? James 1 and verse 6, But let him ask in faith nothing wavering. So he corrects any prayers that are not mixed with faith. Verse 13, Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. He corrects foolish speaking regarding God and your sinfulness. Verse 19, Wherefore, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. Verse 26. If any man among you seem to be religious, and bridleth not his tongue, but deceiveth his own heart, this man's religion is vain. Chapter 2. He describes in verses 2 through 4 an unkind attitude and speech toward the poor. In verse 12, he says, So speak ye, as they that shall be judged by the perfect law of liberty in the great day of judgment. In verse 14, he says, What does it matter if you say that you have faith, but you do not have works? Notice, James is continually addressing our speech And of course, in chapter 3, we have from verses 2 through 12, a lengthy condemnation of sinning by our speech. In chapter 4, verses 11 through 16, is a description of not speaking evil of our brethren. He brings it up again. Look at 4. Speak not evil one of another, brethren. He that speaketh evil of his brother and judgeth his brother, speaketh evil of the law and judgeth the law. But if thou judge the law, thou art not a doer of the law, but a judge. And he goes forward and says that we ought not to speak about our illustrious plans future prophets. We should be saying, if the Lord will, we will do this or we will do that. In James chapter 5 and verse 12, But above all things, my brethren, swear not, neither by heaven, neither by the earth, neither by any other oath. But let your yea be yea, and your yea nay, lest ye fall into condemnation. What an emphasis. What a repetition in the epistle of James about our tongues. So, when God chooses an apostle and sends them after carnal Christians, those who say that they are Christians, those who say they believe that there is one God and He has a Son named Jesus... But they live like the world. When an apostle goes after them, he goes after their speech. Big time. As I just showed you by looking at all five chapters. If we were to go to the book of Proverbs and see Proverbs defining wisdom, how much would he say about the tongue? A great deal. The easiest way to spot a fool is just to listen. Because he'll expose himself by his foolish speech. We could preach forever on the sins of the tongue. I I say that because the Bible has so much to say about it. But we're studying the epistle of James, so we'll not be that long, but we do want to make sure that we get our attention about how important speech is to the Lord. If you want to know more about the tongue and speech, then I would recommend you go home, get in our website, get into the Proverbs section, look up those verses that have to deal with the tongue, and from one let it lead you to other verses by its cross-references until you've exhausted the book of Proverbs about the tongue and speech. Because you will find many, many warnings there about the destruction and curse in your life that God will bring for your sins. And you will find there the promise of blessings if you will speak righteously. James chapter 3. James chapter 3. I'm going to read verses 1 through 12. James 3, 1 through 12. We have a warning about a foolish and profane ambition to be a teacher in verse 1. But then the apostle quickly goes in to why that's a foolish ambition. Because of how easy it is to sin with our tongues. And therefore, we we should rather hear than teach. James chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. My brethren, be not many masters, knowing that we shall receive the greater condemnation. For in many things we offend all. If any man offend not in word, the same is a perfect man, and able also to bridle the whole body. Behold, we put bits in the horses' mouths that they may obey us, and we turn about their whole body. Behold also the ships, which though they be so great, and are driven of fierce winds, yet are they turned about with a very small helm, whithersoever the governor listeth. Even so, the tongue is a little member, and boasteth great things. Behold, how great a matter a little fire kindleth, and the tongue is a fire a world of iniquity. So is the tongue among our members, that it defileth the whole body, and setteth on fire the course of nature, and it is set on fire of hell. For every kind of beasts, and of birds, and of serpents, and of things in the sea, is tamed, and hath been tamed of mankind. But the tongue can no man tame, It is an unruly evil, full of deadly poison. Therewith bless we God, even the Father, and therewith curse we men, which are made after the similitude of God. Out of the same mouth proceedeth blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not so to be. Doth a fountain send forth at the same place sweet water and bitter can the fig tree, my brethren, bear olive berries, either a vine, figs? So can no fountain both yield salt water and fresh. Amen. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Amen. Numerous analogies and metaphors, numerous rhetorical questions, lots of harsh language about our tongues. Let us take these phrases as the Lord has given them to us. My brethren, be not many masters. What is a master? It's a ruler, teacher. In the house of the Lord. God had them under the Old Testament. He had them under the New. Jesus met with one named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, who was a teacher. And Jesus said, thou being a ruler of the Jews, you don't understand these things that I'm telling you? Nicodemus had come to Jesus himself and called him rabbi, which is another word for master. Master meaning a teacher. A master, we know that thou art come from God because no man do these miracles that thou doest except God be with him. Right. A master is a teacher in this context. It is not an employer that has employees working for him. It is a teacher. And so we have the warning, be not many masters. We're going to see this emphasis in verses 9 and 13. Again that James chapter 3, though it's dealing with our tongues and certainly affects all of us by its lesson, it is warning these Jews against a presumption on their part about becoming public or private teachers. In verse 9, he says, Therewith bless we God, even the Father, and therewith curse we men. He's warning about those that have a place to bless God Teachers from verse 1, and yet they use their same tongues to curse men. In verse 13, he addresses them this way, which introduces the third lesson of the uh, chapter. Who is a wise man and endued with knowledge among you? Are there really, are there really any teachers among you? If there are some teachers among you who really have the wisdom of God and to whom God has endued some knowledge, then show it. Don't tell us about it. Show it. So he says in that 13th verse, let him show out of a good conversation his works with meekness of wisdom. Don't be presumptuous to open your mouth about how much you know. If you know so much, then show us a perfect life. Is what James teaches. And he will conclude the chapter the same way by showing there's two kinds of wisdom. There is a wisdom that has bitterness and envy and strife in the heart. That wisdom comes from hell. Amen. Then there is a wisdom that has peace, purity. It's easy to be entreated. It's easy for it to say, I'm sorry. It's cooperative and gets along with others. And it's always sowing peace and righteousness. That is wisdom from heaven. And so James gives these teachers a high standard to aim for. It's all the way through this chapter. Let's come back to verse 1 of chapter 3. My brethren, be not many masters. The warning here is, don't you that I'm writing to all presume to be teachers. Don't have a profane or impulsive or hasty or foolish desire to be a teacher. And he's going to explain why in just a moment. But the first one is a command warning. Be not many masters. Don't choose to seek the office of a teacher, and don't choose to be a private teacher, because both carry a risk with them. You know, some have ambitions for the office of the ministry. And the, ambitious, the ambition is for a good thing. The ambition can be very foolish and presumptuous on their parts. But there is also a desire to be a private teacher, to go around and correct and instruct and teach others on a private basis. The warning here is for both. Every time you open your mouth and profess to tell someone else what they ought to be doing, you are bringing greater condemnation upon yourself if you are not living consistent with that instruction and with everything else God has to say about your life. So the warning is, be not many masters. Don't look to be a teacher. Look to be a hearer. Look to be a listener. Look to be a learner before being a teacher. Now there's a reason that James has to write this way, and let me introduce you to that by looking at the character of the people to whom he wrote. Turn to Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2. Why does James need to take a third chapter of his epistle and go after men who wanted to be teachers and correct them from their ambition and show them the standard that God holds them accountable for. That's first of all learning to control their mouths and then having wisdom that is based on meekness, peace, purity, and easiness of entreating rather than their censorious, critical, negative, overbearing, bitter, strife-based teaching. Romans chapter 2. We know to whom James is writing because the Holy Spirit told us in the first verse to the twelve tribes scattered abroad. The instruction are to Jews. So we come over to here to Romans chapter 2, and Paul's going to tell us about the character and ambition of Jews. Verse 17, Romans two seventeen. Behold, thou art called a Jew, and restest in the law, and makest thy boast of God. As we read through these, notice the phrases, because I'm not preaching Romans 2. But I want you to the phrases that describe their presumptuous pride and the arrogance of their lips and how much they thought they about God's Word. Romans 2.17 Behold, thou art called a Jew, and restest in the law, and makest thy boast of God, and know his will, and approvest the things that are more excellent, being instructed out of the law, and art confident that thou thyself art a guide of the blind, a light of them which are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, which hast the form of knowledge and of the truth in the law. Thou therefore which teachest another, teachest thou not thyself? Thou that preachest a man should not steal, dost thou steal? Thou that sayest a man should not commit adultery, dost thou commit adultery? Thou that abhorrest idols, Dost thou commit sacrilege? Thou that makest thy boast of the law, through breaking the law, dishonorest thou God? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles through you as it is written. For circumcision verily profiteth if thou keep the law. But if thou be a breaker of the law, thy circumcision is made uncircumcision. You Jews that profess to have an advantage by having the word of God, and thinking that you are so knowledgeable that you can instruct and teach all others that the Gentiles should line up at your door, asking for you to give them a daily sermon. You Jews that think so highly of your ability to teach, examine your own lives. Are you living up in accordance with what you're teaching? Your Jewishness amounts to nothing if your life doesn't back up the law of God you profess to have on your coffee table or in your library or committed to your memory. If you do not live it, then it amounts to nothing. And so we have there a description of the Jews and their confidence in having the Bible. Many men have had the Bible, but not all are called to be teachers. Only some, only a few, are called to teach the Word of God. And so there's a warning in this verse about men presuming to be teachers, like those Jews, that were not called of God, either in public, for a public office, or in private. They're presuming on their knowledge. And there's a warning. And here's the warning. Knowing that we shall receive the greater condemnation. A wise man, according to Proverbs, has a very attentive ear. He does not have a very lubricated tongue. He listens better than he speaks. Because wisdom is that recognition that we came into this world knowing nothing and that we have to learn from others in order to be able to teach. And so we want to bow down our ear. We want to humble ourselves. We want to retain things that we are taught in order to teach. And throughout the Bible, we have an emphasis and a warning about such things. It's interesting when you read the Bible that... Three of the greatest teachers and preachers in the Bible didn't want the job. Can you think of a great one in the Old Testament, the greatest judge and teacher who wrote five books under the Old Testament? Moses. Oh, he didn't want that job. He tried to get out of it several times in Exodus chapter 3 and chapter 4, and the Lord got angry with him. He wasn't presuming to be a teacher. He didn't want to do it. He said, I can't speak. I'm not good for the job. Pick someone else. Anyone else but not me. That's Moses. In Jeremiah chapter 1 verses 5 and 6, it was Jeremiah that said, I am but a little child, I don't know how to speak. And then in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, it's the Apostle Paul that said, If I do this thing willingly, then I have a reward. But if I do it against my will, then obviously a dispensation of the gospel has been given to me. Those are three great preachers. They didn't have ambitions to be preachers of Jesus Christ or of God, Jehovah. The Lord called them to it. Earnestly coveting the best gifts is truly taught in the Bible. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul told the Corinthians, covet earnestly the best gifts. And he has just ranked the gifts, starting with apostle and ending with speaking in tongues. Because speaking in tongues was the easiest, cheapest, lowest ranking gift in the New Testament church. Now, speaking in tongues in the New Testament church wasn't anything like speaking in tongues today because no one speaks in tongues today. Benny Hinn doesn't speak in tongues. Benny Hinn babbles in gibberish. But when it was a real gift and you were speaking fluently in a language you had never learned, even then it was the lowest gift in the church. But it was the gift the Corinthians loved the most. And so Paul said, why don't you set your sight a little higher By the words, covet earnestly the best gifts. Why don't you elevate your thoughts and get them out of the lowest gift and aim them toward being an apostle, prophet, or teacher? And then he said, and yet show I unto you a more excellent way. There's even a better way than being a teacher to show and serve the Lord. To show how much you love the Lord and how to serve Him. And that's to love others as you love yourself. And so we have all of chapter 13 explaining the great important role of love, which is what James is going to come back to. James is going to come back to the fact, if you really are called to be a teacher, you're going to show it in a perfect lifestyle. You're going to love everyone. You're going to be merciful, gracious, kind, gentle, easy to be entreated, cooperative, and a peacemaker, and sowing righteousness wherever you go. You're never going to be sowing discord or sowing uneasiness or sowing distress. But sowing peace. And so we have it in 1 Corinthians 12 as well, when we have that warning there. You know, the, the desire for the office proves nothing. In 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 1, it says, if a man desires the office of a bishop, he desires a good work. It doesn't say his desire is a good thing, it just says he desires a good work. The work of a bishop is a good work, and desiring it is desiring a good thing. Then, then, but then, Then, a bishop must be, and it goes on and lists all the qualifications. Desire has never been a qualification for the office. There are other qualifications for it that are listed there in 1 Timothy 3. You're close to Hebrews. Look over at Hebrews chapter 5, and I heard several questions yesterday about this very verse from those of you that were quizzing out of the book of Hebrews. We're talking about being teachers. And, And why would James would say, my brethren, be not many masters, Don't leap at the office of being a teacher, either in public or in private. There's risks associated with it. Don't leap at it. God calls men. Don't try to call yourself to it. Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 4 is speaking of the priesthood, but as far as God calling men to it, it's the same as the office of a bishop in the New Testament. Hebrews 5, 4, No man taketh this honor unto himself, but he that is called of God as was Aaron. God called Aaron. God chose Aaron. God ordained Aaron. God appointed Aaron to be his first high priest, and no man was to take that office. There were a few men that tried to take the office, and God judged them severely. Do you remember King Isaiah? He thought he would go in and offer incense before the Lord. King Uzziah was a good king. God had blessed King Uzziah very much. But he presumed on an office that wasn't his. He went into the temple. The priests tried to stop him. But he used his royal power to go on in anyway. And while he stood there, the leprosy rose up in his face. Because God had no use for him in that building. God had a use for him in another building. And we want to be in the calling that God gives us. Not the calling that we think we deserve. But the calling that God gives us. And when Isaiah stepped out of bounds, the Lord judged him severely. And you know other stories in the Old Testament. Korah and the men that were with him thought that Moses took too much upon himself. They said, you're not the only holy one in Israel. You know, we're kind of holy too. We understand things. We should have your job. It shouldn't be run by you. You should sit down and have us tell you what to do. And God told Moses, stand back, Moses. I have no use for these men. If I don't do something very unusual, then you'll know that maybe they have a point. But if I do something unusual, then you'll know I have a point. I have no use for them. And so God opened the earth and swallowed them and fired down from heaven and burned them up. Because God had no use for them in that office. And do you know who those men were? They were Levites. They had already been chosen to serve God. They had a role. They had an office. But they wanted more. They wanted the priesthood. If the tribe of Levi is this big... Only this few were priests. They were Aaron's direct descendants. The rest of the tribe of Levi were Levites, and they had other roles around the tabernacle and the sanctuary, but they didn't make the offerings and they didn't go in to the sanctuary. These Levites were not content with that. They wanted to be like Moses and Aaron and speak directly with the Lord. And the Lord cut them off. He cut them off, their wives off, their children off. The earth swallowed them up and the fire from heaven burned them. God told Aaron, take all their censers. Those 250 men that thought they could offer incense, they were Levites. They couldn't offer incense. You had to be a priest. You had to have Aaron as your grandpa in order to be a priest. Take those censers, pound them out, encircle the altar with them, so that in the future, if anyone approaches that altar that isn't a descendant of Aaron, they will have a reminder from me that I burned up 250 men that tried the same thing before you. That's in number 16. It's in number 17. God said, Aaron, bring your rod and get the rod from all the other tribes of Israel and lay them up before me. And so there were all the rods of all the tribes of Israel laid up before the Lord, and the Lord said, I'll show you whom I've chosen to approach unto me. And one rod that night, when they woke up in the morning, it had branches, it had leaves, and it had almonds. It had budded, it had grown and budded all night long, though it was as dead as any rod could be. And it was the rod of Levi, because God had chosen that tribe and the family of Aaron to be his priests. And we want to remember that. So James says, my brethren, be not many masters. Don't leap toward being a teacher of God's people, either in public or in private, for we shall bear the greater condemnation. There is judgment upon those who take a role to lead the people of God and do not live up to what they teach, or they do not teach what God has given them to teach. The answer for it is right there in that second clause, knowing that we shall receive the greater condemnation. When Nadab and Abihu thought they would offer some strange fire before the Lord, Nadab and Abihu, Leviticus chapter 10, verses 1 through 3, They offered strange fire. Fire that God hadn't ordained. They tried something their way and God burned them up. And He would not allow Aaron to mourn for his own sons because they had done something so wrong and had not sanctified the Lord. We make the Lord holy and we sanctify Him by coming and worshiping according to the Bible. If we alter what the Bible says, someone is going to pay for it. And the first one that pays for it is the minister. So you don't want to leap into that office You don't want to leap into that position. You know, even if you're doing it in private, do you know what the Lord says? With the measure that you measure out in your judgment of others is the measure that I'm going to pour out upon you. If you're harsh and severe in judging others, I'm going to be harsh and severe in judging you. Matthew chapter 7, and that's verses 3 through 5, if you're judging hypocritically or harshly, and that's even in private. Look at Numbers chapter 18. Numbers chapter 18 I've just referred to you to several stories here in the Old Testament but let's look at a verse Numbers chapter 18 because we want we want to understand what was James saying my brethren be not many masters knowing we shall receive the greater condemnation let's look in the word of God and find the explanation for it Numbers chapter 18 this Korah is chapter 16 Numbers chapter 17 is Aaron's rod flourishing and so forth. Numbers 18, verse 1. The Lord said unto Aaron, Thou and thy sons and thy father's house with thee shall bear the iniquity of the sanctuary. And thou and thy sons with thee shall bear the iniquity of your priesthood. In that one verse, he references two groups of people. Your father's house is Levi's house. All the Levites. They have their duties. You and your sons have their duties together together. They're the duties of the Lord's sanctuary, and you will bear the burden of them. If you do something wrong in my worship, in my house, I'll hold you accountable. So it says that they would bear the iniquity of the sanctuary. That's exactly what James is saying in James 3 and verse 1, knowing that we shall receive the greater condemnation. Verse 2, And thy brethren, also of the tribe of Levi... The tribe of thy father, bring thou with thee, that they may be joined unto thee, and minister unto thee. But thou and thy sons with thee shall minister before the tabernacle of witness. And they shall keep thy charge, and the charge of all the tabernacle. Only they shall not come nigh the vessels of the sanctuary and the altar, that neither they nor ye also die. If you allow the Levites, who had an exalted role with the Lord in serving God and in the religious worship of Israel, but if you allow them to get close to the altar and to the vessels that are part of the, worship, the direct worship of me, they will die and you will die as well for allowing it to happen. What a severe warning in Numbers 18, 1 through 3. And the backup is chapters 16 and 17 and the description there. Come over to your Bibles. To Matthew, Matthew chapter 23, my brethren, be not many masters, knowing that we shall receive the greater condemnation. James puts himself in there, knowing that we shall receive the greater condemnation. Look what Jesus taught in Matthew 23, verse 14, woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye devour widows' houses, and for a pretense make long prayer. Therefore, ye shall receive the greater damnation. There's the greater condemnation, called greater damnation here. It's scribes and Pharisees, those who had the religious leadership of Israel, they were using false prayers to take advantage of widows and take their money. That's what it means to devour widows' houses. It does not mean to eat a widow's bungalow. It means to be taking advantage of them and taking their offerings for religious purposes and not taking care of the widows, who are generally the poor and helpless. There is greater damnation pronounced by Jesus Christ upon them. Of course, in the modern versions of the Bible, Matthew 23, 14 doesn't exist. It goes from verse 13 to verse 15. Come over to Luke chapter 11. Luke chapter 11 and see another description of how Jesus condemned teachers for their role in sinning themselves and in leading others away from the truth. Luke 11 verse 52. Woe unto you lawyers. Luke eleven fifty two, 52. Woe unto you lawyers. For ye have taken away the key of knowledge. Ye entered not in yourselves and them that were entering in ye hindered. You lawyers who study the law of God, who know the law of God, when John the Baptist came preaching and when I came preaching, you would not hear that word and obey it yourself and enter into the kingdom of heaven. Sin number one. And sin number two, you hindered those that were trying to get in by stealing from them the key of knowledge. You in the pulpits, in the way that you have taught the people, you have, you have dis- distracted them, diverted them, and kept them. You have hindered them from hearing my word and entering into the kingdom of heaven. That's why when Jesus preached Matthew 5, 6, and 7, it says the people were astonished because He spake as one having authority. He opened up things to them they hadn't heard before, and in a way they hadn't heard it before. But here is a minister's or a teacher's or a master's two sins. He doesn't obey, and He hinders those that want to obey. Knowing this, brethren, that we shall receive the greater condemnation. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 4. 1 Timothy chapter 4. Here's Paul's warning to Timothy along similar lines. 1 Timothy 4.16 Take heed unto thyself and unto the doctrine. Continue in them. For in doing this, thou shalt both save thyself and them that hear thee. Continue in them. Them is a plural pronoun referring to two things. Take heed to yourself, Timothy, that you're living a righteous life. Second, take heed to the doctrine that you are teaching to others. Continue in doing both of those things, taking heed to both of those duties that you have, because if you will do that, you'll save yourself from not being like the lawyers of Luke 11, and you'll save those that hear you. What a wonderful warning there in 1 Timothy chapter 4. More could be said on that subject, but we'll, we'll go on. Let's come back to James chapter 3. We want to understand why in the midst of this epistle did James jump in with a warning about being teachers? My brethren, be not many masters, knowing that we shall receive the greater condemnation. The Jews had a presumptuous and profane desire to be teachers, especially of Gentiles. You know, they thought out there in the world, listen, we've got the Word of God, these dumb Gentiles. They had to line up to be taught by us. We're a teacher of the babes. We can be an instructor in everything. And you saw Paul, how he just blasted them in Romans 2. Why don't you start living it? It's the very thing James is going to do in James 3. Show us. Show us the truth. Don't tell us about the truth. Show us the truth. Are you hot, brother? It's over 120 right here. Anybody that wants to test it can come right. I am i don't mean 90. I have this vent right here. Thank you, brother. You can check my shirt if you don't believe me. Anybody have an iron for between services? Or a new shirt? For those of you listening by tape, sorry. James chapter 3. It got a little warm in here. We left it on, we left it on air conditioning for the past week so that when our, the first brother got here this morning, it was like a meat locker. And we, we made up for it. James chapter 3. He doesn't say teacher or master again, but it's implied in verses 9, 13, and 17 and 18 because he starts out with that. So we we want to understand the connection. And and verse 2 begins with the word for. And when you've got the word for, that's a coordinating conjunction. You know, when you've got the word but, that's a disjunctive conjunction, meaning we've got something being contrasted. But when you've got for, you've got something being coordinated. And so verse 2 relates to verse 1. And sure enough, it's going to explain why we don't want to be too hasty in a role of teaching. Because we're going to receive the greater condemnation and, look at what it says, for in many things we offend all. Uh Uh-oh, if in many things we offend all, if it's easy for us to offend the God of heaven, and those that offend as teachers are going to get greater condemnation, then we better be very slow about the office of teacher. You I'm writing to? Don't presume on this office because it is so easy to sin. And let me give you an example. It's so easy to sin with our speech. And that's how we go from verse 1 into verse 2. For in many things we offend all. In many things we offend all. For in many things we offend all. For in many things we all offend. Oh, but that's not what it says, is it? For in many things we offend all. Does that mean in many things we offend all other people? Or does that mean we all offend God in many things? We've got to make a choice here in the language because the all is positioned in a way that we're not used to positioning it. For in many things we offend all. Is all referring to other people or is all referring to all of us? Our offensive that is what we choose because of the context. The context is, don't be, a, don't choose to be a teacher foolishly or hastily because you're going to get greater condemnation from the Lord because we all sin so easily and because our greatest and chiefest and easiest sin is the sin of our speech. By the context, we keep the flow going in the same direction. James here isn't worried that hearers might be offended with a speaker because speakers don't care what hearers think. Paul said in First Corinthians chapter four, It is a very small thing that I would be judged of you. Yea, I don't even judge myself. I have someone that judges me. It's the Lord that judges me. Right. In First Corinthians four one through four. So we take that position here on the first clause. Let me let me chase a rabbit for a second. In many, for in many things we offend all. We take the word all and apply it to our to we for many things we all offend that's the sense that's the way we would write it today but the lord wrote it this way do i have another example from the bible this is my rabbit jesus said in luke when he when he distributed the lord's supper oh i shouldn't have said that word when he had the lord's supper he said drink ye all of it drink ye all of it i've told you what that used to mean to me as a child When my father would be administering the Lord's Supper and I was sitting there as a child, don't get grossed. Don't get grossed out. But as a little. I don't even want to tell you. I'd stick my tongue into the cup to make sure I got the last drop because the Lord said, Drink ye all of it. Don't laugh at me. What? I, I thought the words, drink ye all of it, meant make sure you get it all. Drink ye all of it. What do the words mean? All of you drink of it. Do we know that? Yes, because we've got four Gospel accounts. When we go to the other Gospel accounts, Jesus distributed the cup of, of wine to everyone and, and had all of them drink of it. Is that little statement of Jesus important? The Catholics don't give the cup to the laity. That statement is very important. When you're in a Catholic church, and things are changing a little bit now, but for 1,500 years, when you're in a Catholic church, you go forward, stick out your tongue, and they stick that little wafer on it and say, this is the Lamb of God, or behold the Lamb of God. You only get the host. You do not get the wine. It's always been that way. The priest drinks the wine. The people get the bread. But look what Jesus said. Drink ye all of it. And he meant, drink y'all of it. That's what he meant. Now, all of you should understand that better than I do. Drink, y'all, of it. And here we have the same thing. You know, I can say to the Lord, Lord, I wish you'd put that all where I need it. But the Lord put it where he's got it. But we understand what it's saying. My brethren, don't be hasty about being a teacher, because we're going to get the greater condemnation because it's so easy for all of us to sin. And then he goes forward and grabs the sin that's easiest of all, and that's the sin of our tongues. If any man offend not in word, the same is a perfect man, and able also to bridle the whole body. We can understand this sentence here in a hypothetical way, which is impossible. Now, James has just said, in many things we offend all. Would he then in the next sentence, within the same verse, say that it's possible for you not to offend in speech? And by not offending in speech, not offending at all in any way? We, we look at it and we can see a, a hypothetical illustration. If a man can get a hold of his speech, then he's a perfect man because anything else in his life is going to be easy. Right. But we can also see that it's a general statement. If a man can generally get control of his tongue, he can probably get control of the rest of his life in a general way because the tongue is so easy to sin with If we can get it and restrain it, then we can restrain the rest of our passions. If any offend not in word, the same is a perfect man and able also to bridle the whole body. We notice from this that sins of speech must be the easiest, must be the hardest to curb, or it wouldn't be worded this way. If you can get control of your speech, you can get control of anything else, the implication being. Sins of speech are the hardest to reign in. That's what, that's what we're to get out of these words. But brethren, there's hope in those words. There is also hope in those words. If we, by the grace of God, and our diligence, and our praying, control our speech, and rule our tongues, and do not offend in word, there is hope for the rest of our passions. There is hope in this verse. And he's going to proceed based on that ground. If we can rule our speech, we can rule our entire body, our entire reputation, all of our passions, all of our lusts, all of our bodily members, if we can get a hold of our speech. Because it's the easiest way in which we sin, and it's the hardest to rule. And so he's arguing in verse two, a small, great comparison. If we can control, he doesn't call it small yet, he's about to. If we can control this little thing in our mouths, if we can rule it, then we can govern the whole man. There's hope there. And he's going to appeal to that little comparison in verse 3. He draws two illustrations, one and three, one and four, about the small great analogy that he had here. If we can control this, we can control the whole man. We can rule the whole man if we can rule our tongues. Verse 3, Behold, we put bits in the horse's mouths that they may obey us, and we turn about their whole body. A bit is a little one-pound piece of metal. It is controlled by the reins of a rider on a horse. It goes against the soft lips of that horse. And with a little bit of tugging in either direction, we can get a horse to turn all the way around. And someone skillful can do it with hardly any effort at all. A good rider doesn't even need the bit, but that would lose Paul's argument. One pound controls a 1,200-pound animal. A 1,200-pound animal that is not known for its high IQ in comparison to rational creatures like us. And yet, a good and skillful rider can get a horse to do almost anything with a one-pound piece of metal. Small, great comparison again if we can get control of our tongue, we can get control of the whole body. If we can control a horse with a one-pound piece of metal, surely, if we can get control of our tongues, we can control our whole bodies. That's the line of reasoning. That's the intent of the metaphor that the Apostle James has here. We go to verse 4. Behold also the ships, which though they be so great and are driven of fierce winds, yet are they turned about with a very small helm Whithersoever the governor listeth. Think about a sail-driven ship. Very large vessel. You know, the one that took Paul from Caesarea to Rome had 218 soldiers aboard, plus other passengers. A very large boat with fierce winds. The winds are ripping at this ship. And yet, there's a wheel. And by turning that wheel, or the helm, it turns the rudder which is just a small piece of wood in those days under the water that would direct a ship. Again, small versus large. If we can get control of a whole ship by a little rudder, can we get control of our lives and all of our passions by starting right here and getting a hold of our tongues? If we can learn to put up a guard and not let words out of our mouths that shouldn't come out, we can put up a guard to stop everything else. What a warning! What hope! What hope, brethren! We have some supercarriers. Do you know what a supercarrier is turned by? A little electronic helm by the captain of that ship that turns 41-ton rudders. The Nimitz and other large supercarriers we have have 41-ton rudders. You say, well, that sounds like a pretty big thing. Not compared to a carrier. Because a carrier displaces 100,000 tons of water when it's sitting loaded. And yet it's turned with a 41 ton. 41 tons doesn't match up to 100,000 tons. Doesn't matter. The Lord's got us. The Lord's got us. We can take a 1,200-pound horse and turn it with a one-pound bit. We can take a 100,000-ton displacement aircraft carrier and turn it with a 41-ton rudder. Can we turn our lives around? Can we, can we rule and bridle all of our passions by getting a hold of our tongues? Don't, be, don't want to be a teacher. Be a listener. Because as soon as we open this thing up, as soon as we think that we're going to be a teacher, we open this, all of a sudden words are flowing out of it, and how easy it is it to sin? If we can get a hold of this first, then we can get a hold of the rest of our lives. Verse 5. Even so, even so, we've just had a comparison of small to great, small to great. Even so, the tongue is a little member and boasteth great things. Now the apostle was following a comparison, small, large. If we can get control of the small tongue, we can control the large body, the whole man, the whole body. But now he uses his small, great for a different purpose. And for those of you that like literature, No one has ever written like the Holy Spirit. The transitional sentences and phrases in the Bible are fantastic. He uses small great for small tongue, whole body, bit, horse, rudder, ship. Now he turns it around to say the small great again in a different way. And the transition is beautiful. Little thing, great sins. Little thing, great damage done by our tongues. Even so the tongue is a little member and boasteth great things. Our tongues can say some of the most audacious, incredible, terrible things so quickly, even though it's so small. We can, we can lay claim to all sorts of stuff with the boasting of our mouths. Lord, save us from the great things that can flow from this. The great sins that flow from our little tongue. It is a little member of our bodies. And we can rule the whole body if we can learn to rule the little bot, the little member of it. But we've got to stop that little member from boasting great things. And then a third metaphor. Behold, how great a fire. Behold, how great a matter. A little fire kindleth. Behold, how great a matter. A little fire kindleth. You know, Smokey the Bear taught that you don't leave your campfire because your campfire could burn down the forest. A little matter, bringing a great fire. You know, when everything was made of wood, a fire was terribly destructive. The fire of Chicago, go read about the damage caused by a fire that would race through city blocks. The sparks and tenders being driven by the great heat would go to the next block and take another block. Fire was terrible. Oh, how many how many farmers have tipped over a lantern while they were sitting there milking a cow and watched their barn, hay, straw, and animals burn up. You know how fast a barn goes? With the things I just mentioned in there, a wooden barn? Fire is terrible. And so the apostle grabs our attention. Behold, and there's an exclamation point here, how great a matter a little fire kindleth. We let go with some of the smallest words. One word. Two words. Small little words flip off our tongues. And what trouble they cause. They grieve marriages. They separate spouses. They destroy children. They lead to wars between nations by words dropping off a tongue. How great a matter. How great a fire a little matter can kindle when we let it out of our mouths. One word the wrong way. Lord, put a guard over my lips. Put a guard over my lips and tune my heart to thank the ways that yours does so that my words are always gracious. Let your speech be always with grace, only seasoned with a pinch of salt that she may know how you ought to answer every man. How much trouble is caused in churches By members shooting off their tongue against some other member or against the pastor. How many homes are messed up because of the speech in that house? How many children are discouraged? You know, the Bible says fathers in one verse to fathers in Colossians chapter 3 do not discourage your children because how many fathers have discouraged their children by words flipping off their tongue? Sarcastic, negative, critical. Never loving. So many men have gone through life and not heard their father say to them, I love you. But they've heard everything else from that tongue of their father. Even so, in just the way of the horse and the ship, the tongue is a little member. And pressing it in a different direction, it can boast of great things. It's like a fire. A little tiny fire. A dropped match. A dropped match can burn down thousands of acres. And do you know what the Bible says about fire? It says it's never satisfied. It never gets to a place. This is Proverbs chapter 30, and verse 16. There are four things on earth that are never satisfied, and one of them is a fire. A fire never gets to a place and says, well, I've burned enough, I think I'll go out. It's never satisfied. And do you know what? When we speak words... I'm going to tell you something. You can never go get them back. Once it's out, there is no reel on that line to pull it back in. It's gone. You can apologize for it. You can repent for it. You can confess and I'll forgive you. But if you've hurt someone else, do you know what the Bible says? To recover an offended brother? Harder to be taken than a walled city. The The bars of a castle. Once those words are gone, oh Lord, help us to remember these things. And so we come to the sixth verse, and the sixth verse says, the tongue is a fire. The tongue is a world of iniquity. So is the tongue among our members that it defileth the whole body and setteth on fire the course of nature, and it is set on fire of hell. There is within every one of us, and I'm not going to cover this verse right now, there is within every one of us the pit of hell in our depraved hearts and souls. And it's that that fuels this tongue. And without the grace of God in regenerating us to give us a new man, and without the grace of God assisting us to put that new man on and to get off the old man, this thing lets out the fumes and the sewer of that depraved heart that is set on fire of hell. And out comes flames that scorch, destroy, and burn in people's lives, in churches, in families, in businesses. So the warning is, be not many masters, knowing that we shall receive the greater condemnation. Let us be swift to hear, slow to speak, because who has not offended with this? Even Isaiah said, I am a man of unclean lips. The warning is, if you can control this, and there's hope in this warning, if you can control this, you can learn to control the whole body. Just like a horse is controlled by a small bit, just like a ship is controlled by a small helm and rudder. However, this little member can do great damage, and we must guard every word that comes off it. Every word that comes off it, lest we light a fire that burns far more than the little matter that we let out. Because our tongue is a little member, it is a fire, It is a world of iniquity. It is full of iniquity. As much as the world, is as large as the world is great and includes everything, so our tongue includes all kinds of iniquity. It sets on fire the course of nature. It stirs up men and their passions. You instantaneously respond to a word improperly spoken at the wrong time. You have an instantaneous reaction inside of you. Because words, not governed and controlled and not spoken the right way at the right time, light you up. It sets on fire the course of nature. And we burn ourselves to the ground. God, help us. We are are breaking. We are going to take our break. You are going to start to open your mouths. I'm going to shut mine. Let us guard every word that comes out of them. Today. Tomorrow until the Lord comes. And we'll have more on this when we come back.